Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Saleh Sheikh. I'm a UT Houston PMNR PGY3. I'm here with Dr. Kavari uh, for our podcast. Hi, Dr. Gavari. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do in Houston and what your favorite thing to eat is here in Houston? Hi, Dr. Seek. Um, I'm Rose Kavari, as you mentioned. I'm a urologist here at Houston Methodist Hospital, and my clinical and research focus is on neurogenic bladder, neurourology, pelvic floor function and dysfunction. Um, so I also take care of a lot of individuals who have uh, a need for bladder division, bladder reconstruction, or men who have who have a need for uh, prosthesis for urinary incontinence. So both men and women, uh, pelvic reconstructive surgery. Um, I did my training at UTMB for medical school, Galveston, and then residency at Baylor, and then a fellowship with uh, Tim Boone, which some of you guys may know, and um, uh, Baylor Methodist, and then um, I've been here at Methodist since then. All right, sounds good. And uh, what what's your favorite thing to eat in Houston here? Oh yeah, uh, ooh, there's so many good options here. Um, there are. So I have to say, I'm Persian, um, and so there are a lot of good Iranian restaurants um, yeah. around the, the city. And um, I wouldn't be a true Persian if I don't say kebab. So that would be <laughs> my favorite to go food every weekend if I could. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. I'll have to try some kebab options. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so what's your practice setting like? Do you, uh, are you inpatient? Are you in the clinic? Uh, how do you normally see your patients? So, um, urology is a, is a surgical subspecialty, but honestly, half of our work or more than that is in the clinic. We do a lot of, uh, we manage a lot of our patients clinically, um, or do a lot of procedures also clinically. Um, so I am currently in about 30% research. I am NIH funded, so they support some of my efforts to be able to do translational research. Um, I'm the, the residency program director for urology, um, so I'm 20% um, education and administration. And then the rest is clinical, so which is almost every day of the week. Um, uh, and um, I have clinics two days a week where in the mornings I do procedures and that's urodynamics. Um, it's my stethoscope. This is how I diagnose and treat patients. So we do fluoroscopy assisted urodynamics, which is called video urodynamics. We have Hoyer lifts, the most beautiful urodynamic suite, I think in Houston, the, the best views on the 21st floor. 
uh, patients love it. So a lot of good uh, modifications has been done to be able to uh, have a neurogenic bladder patients. Um, and then we do a lot of cystoscopies in clinic on Mondays and Wednesdays mornings. I do almost all of my Botox injections in the clinic where a majority of people may do it in the OR. I've timed it, it's less than 50 seconds and with under local anesthesia. So we do it in clinic. And then in the afternoon, we just see patients. Um, I also run a transition urology clinic where we take care of individuals who have GU congenital issues and now they're transitioning to adult world, spina bifida individuals, sacroiliogenesis individuals, cerebral palsy, um, uh, that they've been cared for so beautifully by their pediatric urologists at, let's say, UT or TCH or Herman, and, and now they're, they're transitioned to adult world. So um, I do have once a month transition urology clinic. And then the rest of the week I operate. Um, uh, I think the my cases are small sometimes. They're like less than 10, 15 minutes, quick little procedures, um, or they're long all day cases where I do augmentation cystoplasties, but all sort of rerouting and remodeling and refiguring the bladder, and that's eight hour surgery. So I think we the residents and fellows see a good breadth of small to large cases, and so it's fun. All right. I love what I do. Yeah, it's, it's uh sounds like you do a lot of different things. It's never boring. Um so for uh Eurodynamics, um from uh our perspective, at least my personal perspective as a PMNR resident, um when we refer to urology for uh UDS study, um that's where that's where my knowledge stops. Um, you know, I, I refer out and then I don't do anything more. <laughs> From your perspective, um, do you do you wish that we did a little more on our end and maybe gave you a little more information um, rather than just saying refer for UDS? Um, so a few things I think everyone needs to know about urodynamics. It is our stethoscope. It gives us a lot of valuable information about the bladder. Um, and if you use fluoroscopy, the anatomy of the bladder, the anatomy of the bladder, neck reflux, all of that, but it's not perfect. So many times we get referrals from neurosurgery that, oh, is this a neurogenic bladder? I don't know. I can't, I can't diagnose a neurogenic bladder based on a urodynamic. There are features that could suggest that some of this change could be because of neurogenic bladder. So I think that the mo most important thing is to know the limitations of it, of it and the expectations that we walk away from it. Uh, for my residents, I always tell them you have to have a clinical question when you send patients for your dynamics. If you don't have a clinical question, that test is worthless. It's not going to give you any good information. For neurogenic patients, it's a little bit different because we do want a baseline information about the function, where they are right now, and how we can tailor their management down the road. So they may be really, you, you don't necessarily need to have that question. It's your initial evaluation. Again, our guidelines are emphasizing that now that definitely do it as your part of your initial uh, evaluation so you can risk stratify the patient and hopefully prevent some of the changes that come down the road. I would say for uh, for you guys or the, the primary care physicians uh, that refer patients for us, you really, you don't necessarily have to know much about it unless this is a kind of research that you need to know, but also know that there are limitations and it changes. Patients may have, you know, even if you go use the restroom, if you do it throughout the day multiple times, you just get better at the end of the day. You'll just, you know, if you feel your bladder, pay attention to it, you'll just pee better. 
So urodynamics theoretically uh, can patients can perform better and it can change with the disease uh, progression as well. So it can change over time. There is a need um, that sometimes we may need to repeat it or um, do it on a more uh, frequent um, intervals. So. All right. So uh, investigating a specific question. So what would be a, from our perspective, what would be a good uh, or a, a sample of good questions? Refer for UDS, rule out, for example. So I think the first question you want is to answer for neurogenic patients. This is what I'm suspecting you guys would send, let's say, stroke or, or you know, yeah. um, MS. Or so the first question would be baseline urodynamics to risk stratify them for their urological care. Okay. Um, so to see how hostile their bladder is, what are the storage pressures? In the bladder and what are the voiding pressures? I think to simplify the whole urology is storage voiding, storage voiding. When you see a patient, just think about symptoms. Is it storage symptoms? Is it voiding symptoms? Is it both? And that's it. And that will answer a lot of your questions. If you see neurogenic, do they have dysfunction in the storage, voiding, or both? And this therapy can help storage, this therapy can help voiding, this therapy can help both. It helps kind of clean up this whole mess of bladder dysfunction. And it helps patients understand they're taking the tamsulosin for voiding. They're taking anticholinergic for storage. One will fix, will not fix both. They may need both for this reason. So it helps with the expectation, clarifying patients' understanding, and kind of puts everything more in buckets and makes it simplified. So, um, yeah, for, for you guys, I think mainly would be to baseline to risk stratify patients' neurogenic lower urine tract management. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, so you mentioned you see some MS patients, some uh, spina bifida patients. What other uh, uh, special populations do you see? And in your care, if you could summarize kind of what the specific needs are for those uh, subsets of uh, patients that you see. Mm -hmm. So I think spina bifida, cerebral palsy is another very difficult patient population that I see because. Um, again, people think that that's a very stable disease and it really doesn't change over time. But unfortunately, when they get to us, there's a lot more changes um, in their body and their ur urinary symptoms have changed. Um, sacral agenesis, um, uh, some of those, again, the, the, the dysfunction has gone so far that the bladder is really remodeled by the time they get to us. Um, I take care of a lot of uh, Parkinson's patients, Parkinson's disease patients. Those th that's a very difficult, uh, you know, group of individuals to take care of as well. Um, the the women, although they may have more advanced disease and more advanced symptoms in general from their disease standpoint and bladder standpoint, but they're a little bit easier because they don't have the issue of the prostate. The men, by the time they get to me, it's also the BPH issue, the prostate issue, the voiding issue. Is it the bladder? Is it the nerve? Is it the prostate? So that's a little bit of a complex kind of uh, group. Um, I think, um, let's see, MS. MS is a whole spectrum, waxes and wanes. I have the whole spectrum of MS patients, men, women. Again, for men, there's always, hopefully, I mean, thankfully, they're a little bit younger, but again, as they age, the whole BPH comes to my mind that I have to take care of. Um, we also talk about their sexual dysfunction. When I see all my spina bifida patients, um, again, as urologists, I tell my residents, we're responsible from here, from basically top of the, the kidney all the way to the tip of the penis or tip of the meatus. So everything from 
that area is our responsibility. If they have stones, if they have erectile dysfunction, libido issues, testosterone issues, we should ask about it. Now, if we can treat it, we should treat it. If we can, we need to find the right person, but it should be part of our um, discussion and, and examination and evaluation. So, um, um, so yeah, so MS, Parkinson's, very challenging. Um, stroke patients also very difficult just because of the, uh, and dementia, I'm going to put that in that category as well. Dementia, the whole Alzheimer's dementia group, just because we have so much limitations as far as treatment for them. I mean, it is not uncommon for me, or it is actually common that unfortunately I don't have much to offer those patients except for a condom cath or just managing their, their leakage or there's, there's really, those are, that's a difficult group of patients to manage or help. Um, spinal cord injury. We see a lot of those now with our collaboration with tear. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, when you're treating, um, sexual dysfunction in your patient population, uh, it is a sensitive subject. What have you found is a easy way to bring up the topic and, uh, kind of start, start the conversation. So, 2 ways. For my spina bifida, for my congenitalism group, that is even more difficult because remember, these are kids that they're followed with their parents everywhere they go. And this is the first time they're seeing an adult urologist that's going to ask this question. They're 25 and this question has never been even addressed or discussed, but it's on their mind. Everybody wants to know about it. What are their capabilities? Can they be sexually active? Can they, you know, can they become pregnant or make someone pregnant? So. They want to know, but they've never asked them and nobody has ever even brought it up and they're always with their parents. So what we have done over the past seven years is that we actually have a registry for us for our congenital group, transitional group. And so in that intake um, database that we recruit them to, there are sexual dysfunction and erectile dysfunction and female sexual dysfunction and fertility questions, uh, questionnaires and questions. And at the bottom of it is, do you want to know more about this? Or do you want to learn more about this? And so that's our icebreaker. We ask the parents, we ask the patient that there are going to be questionnaires you're going to be answering. Some of them are going to be about sexual function and dysfunction. If you're comfortable, answer it and let us know if you need help, we'll help you. And, um, and I also do a pelvic exam. Again, they've never had a pelvic exam. So I let the mom know, I ask them, do you want the mom in the room or not in the room? And it's up to them. They ask the, the mom to leave or their, their, um, uh, their, their dad to leave and they will do the exam. So again, I think that group, they've never even been in that situation. That's the hardest part, but we always bring it up at the initial visit and we make a point. Is this something you want to talk about or it's not important to you? And if they say yes, then we'll explore it. If they say no, it's okay. Just let me know whenever you're ready and you want to talk about it. I'm going to be your urologist, so you can let me know whenever. Um, I think for other groups, it's a little easier because a lot of times they actually bring it up. A lot of my Parkinson's patients, a lot of my MS patients, they actually bring up the, the decreased libido. They do bring up their, their, their erectile dysfunction and their, the troubles with ejaculation. So that that's easier. And then we'll just go from there. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, so, uh, you talk to us about the future of neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. Um, and, um, you don't have to, you know, repeat the whole talk, but if you were to maybe summarize kind of. 
some surgical techniques or neuromodulative modalities, um, what would you say the future is? Is it surgery? Is it neuromodulation? Is it something else? Uh, where do you see this field going? Ideally, in 30 years, 50 years, not even having this problem, preventing it. So as soon as the patient becomes at risk, let's say they get diagnosed with a neurological disease, the bladder and bowel becomes number one priority, not when we actually have the problem, not when the remodeling has happened. So hopefully our neurologists, our primary care physicians, um, PMNR physicians, the people who see these individuals at the beginning, put that top on their priority list and let's send them to a urologist and let's get some evaluations right at baseline. What are the interventions that we can do to modulate the disease so we don't we won't have the problem with the neurogenic lower urinary dysfunction? So I, in an ideal setting. But till we get there, um, I think there's been a lot more development in early, again, diagnosis, early intervention. Um, some of these therapies like antimuscarinics, a lot of people started when patients have incontinence, when patients have bothersome urgency. But I think, let's say, in spinal cord injury individuals, maybe it is better to start it earlier to prevent some of these changes in the bladder. So hopefully we'll delay and mitigate some of the, those issues. From surgical standpoint, um, again, there's really, there's, we're sort of in plateau. There's really not a lot of exciting, innovative things coming around quite yet, um, but um, uh, but I think we're just getting better at what we're, we're, we're doing. We're getting better at uh, doing augmentations and channels. We're using uh, more um, uh, minimally invasive therapies, more enhanced therapies for recovery. Um, I mentioned that one study that just opened up in, in, in Mayo. Um, I think it's very futuristic, but the, the whole of doing tra allograft transplantation from cadaveric transplantation for kidneys, which we do it commonly, but it will be a concurrent kidney and bladder transplant. So, I mean, I would love to use wow. somebody else's bladder to augment instead of using patient's own uh, bowel to augment. It's a pretty morbid surgery. So I think sure. there, that would be great. Yeah, fascinating. All right, uh, you mentioned your uh, program director also, right? Yes, correct. With re residents and fellows. Right. So, um, what would you say are some of the misunderstandings that you've noticed uh, along the way working with residents and fellows about the uh, maybe the pathophys or the management of uh, neurogenic bladder and neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction? Um, are there some things that stand out that are kind of common across the board? What have you What have you found in your experience? So I see it in my juniors, uh, in their eyes when they show up to clinic. This area is like a big black box. It's not like, oh, they have BPH, I'm going to turp them and they'll be fine. Or they have kidney stone, great, I'm going to laser it and they'll be fine. Prostate cancer, radiation or surgery, like simple stuff, like algorithm. You follow the algorithm. Here in neurogenic bladder, they see I go to the room and every patient gets a different treatment plan. As soon as they feel like they figured it out, so like the next patient, we're not doing that. We're like, we're completely fine with this BTU. We walk out of the room and they're like, oh, I thought we're just gonna, no, no. So I think at the beginning is this big black box of why there's no, there's no algorithm for things. It's, again, from a surgeon standpoint, everybody wants things to be simplified and we're just gonna fix it and it's gonna go away. But that's not the case. It's a functional problem and it's more of a management. There's no fix to it. I think that's what, when they realize that that's the case, 
and the treatment again needs to be individualized. The management needs to be individualized and everyone's care is different. Everyone's support is different. Everyone's goal is different. I see my nerves, my spina bifida patients, they've been incontinent all their life. They're 25 years old. They lived in diapers and guess what? They're extremely happy. They're extremely, that's fine. That's not a problem for them. I'm not going to fix it. And my residents shouldn't fix, try to fix it either because my therapies may actually hurt their quality of life when they're completely fine with them. It's not even bothering him. So putting patients, it's truly a patient-centered kind of practice of uh, medicine for us. I think that's the key. And then the biggest, the other biggest thing is the urodynamics. Um, and, and they're always scared when they come into our rotation and they have to read all these urodynamics and they're all difficult, catheter from channel, catheter from below, above, it's just, it's confusing, but I think what I emphasize from the patient's care and your dynamics that simplify storage, voiding. Tell me what you see in the storage. Tell me what you see in the voiding, and then how are you going to fix each? And we'll go from there. So keeping those two phases of bladder function in mind, and then addressing expectations and therapies to those, I think hopefully will help them understand this better and and help our patients better. It sounds sounds very similar to some aspects of PM&R where only through experience you can kind of understand the nuances and uh, then develop a specific treatment plan for the patient. Yeah. Um, Correct. Very interesting. All right. Do, do you guys do any urology rotations? Do you guys rotate with any neurourologists? Um, we don't as of now. Uh, we have some uh, peripheral exposure uh, while we're in the clinic, but we don't specifically rotate um, with a, a urology attending. Um, are you volunteering? Sure. I've had Argy come <laughs> over, Dr. Stampus come over and, and hang out with yeah. us with urodynamics. But yes. do you guys have to like go see urodynamic, what it's done or how it's done? Um, we we don't we don't see that. We we do get some urological management. Um, experience with our spinal cord attendings it is um it's not the same as being with the urologist uh, for sure um but yeah that that could be an option uh, I think it's fun forward. when you guys come to us not just the clinic like let's say even two days out of the whole i don't know how many years your residency is let's say four two days out of the four-year residency you can spend one day of it in clinic and one day of it in the or the fact that you get to see that thickened bladder that's so remodeled you get to like touch it I think it would make a big difference than just seeing the images of it. Or when you're trying to put that pro car in, you feel like, oh my God, this yeah. is a really remodeled thickened bladder. And you get, okay, that's what an organic bladder looks like. I think I think it would be fun. I agree. I'd I'd love to do that. Yeah. I'll suggest it. Sounds good. All right. I think that's all the time we have for today, right. Dr. Kavari. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking the time to uh, have a have a conversation with us about um, what you do. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. Bye bye. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. 
We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.